Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this lecture, which really comes under the umbrella of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. And for those of you who are not familiar with that, because it is quite a new venture at the LSE, uh, Grantham is a man called Jeremy Grantham, uh, who runs a fund management operation called GMO, based in Boston, but who is uh, personally hugely interested in climate change. So he is not a passive funder who wants his name on things. He is a genuine missionary in this area and has funded two parallel centres, one at Imperial, which focuses on the science of climate change, and one here, which focuses on the economics of climate change. And we have a board that oversees the two centres. We're rather enthusiastic about this because I think it's a rather good collaboration between the LSE and Imperial, who are parallel institutions with very little overlap. So the lecture is under the auspices of the Grantham Centre and, of course, delivered by Nick Stern, who is the IG Patel Professor in the school, but also is the chairman of the Grantham Research Institute. Uh, what can I say about Nick Stern that has not been said before? Well, he was born, actually, on Houghton Street, um, or more or less. Uh, he used to be an economist, um, <laughs> but he's gone straight uh, since then. Um, he is, of course, or was the author of the Stern Report for the British government, which is widely seen as one of the most authoritative reviews of climate change, particularly of the uh, economics of the subject. And it was after he'd completed that report that he left the government and came back to the LSE, which has long been his intellectual home. And this evening, he is going to give us an update on Copenhagen and what will happen there. I'm sure that since almost by definition you're an audience who is interested in this subject, uh, as am I, but I imagine that many of you, as I am, are somewhat confused about just what is going to happen at Copenhagen because every other day in the newspaper there is an article saying uh, nothing's going to happen, it's all too difficult, and uh, the world community is not stepping up to the challenge, and then the next day, the intervening days, you hear a more positive piece about how China's doing this or India has changed its mind about that. Um, but there we are. But Nick will um, reveal all the truth behind the headlines. Nick? Actually, my experience is there's not a great deal of truth behind many headlines, but um, the... Howard, thank you very much. A very kind uh, introduction um, from the artist formerly known as the director of the London School of Economics. Um, his reference to my being born here was um, uh, obvious to those that know, but probably not obvious to most of you, is that my mother used to be a student at the London School of Economics. So there are many senses in which uh, this, is, uh, this is my home. Um, this is a crucial two and a half weeks in uh, the history of the world. I think that uh, we should regard Copenhagen as the most important uh, gathering 
international gathering since the Second World War because of the issues which are at stake. And obviously some part of what I will say will just be to remind us of the magnitude of the issues that are at stake. It's important because not only are those issues at stake, but we now are in a position, given the way in which uh, momentum is built, commitments have started to come, or commitments may be too strong a word, intentions have started to come over these last weeks and months, that we now have a chance of getting a sensible agreement one that uh, is commensurate with the magnitude of the challenge, but also is equitable enough to hold a coalition together. And of course, it's vital that it is a global coalition. So we have a chance. It is absolutely not guaranteed. We cannot take it for granted. And we may well, as a world, make a mess of this. And it would be very difficult to put the pieces back together again if we did. But we have a chance now, and that's what I want to try to set out, see what sort of chance it is, what's involved in taking that uh, opportunity, which we now have because of the momentum that has uh, built up. So that's what I'll uh, try to say. There is a paper behind uh, this talk, which uh, should by now be on the website, uh, lse.ac.uk forward slash Grantham Institute, one that you visit every day. Um, but it should be uh, on there by now, at least I hope so. Um, I should say at the outset that, as with most things that I've been involved with in all this, this is very much uh, joint work with colleagues at the Grantham Institute here at the LSE, at the Grantham Institute at uh, Imperial, and indeed in other parts of uh, London and elsewhere where kind and good colleagues have... Um, collaborated in a very uh, cheerful and strong spirit. Um, you know who you are. At least those of you who are here will know who they are, and those who are not here, I wanted to thank them uh, also. Now, I will start by setting out the basic idea. I'll have to go fairly quickly, but the basic idea is about why this is so important. And then I'll go on to assess where we are in relation to where we need to be and then talk about what a structure of agreement might look like and what some of the problems <clears throat> of the detail of getting there may turn out to be. Um, I just sh should do something now that I usually do as a, a lecturer here at the, in the old theatre is check that those at the back can uh, hear what I'm saying. My goodness. Yeah, no. Uh, you also have to check that rigor mortis hasn't set in in the in the back row. But uh, it all looks um, all looks very promising. Now, where? What's the story? Now, um, don't worry if you can't read it. If you're young, you probably can. If you're old, you probably can't. Um, but never mind. I'm going to go through the uh, basic uh, story. Now we have to see this as uh, part of the two defining challenges of this century. One is overcoming poverty and the other is managing climate change. If we fail on one, we fail on the other. If we fail to manage climate change, we will create a physical environment so hostile that it will stop and reverse the progress in development that has been made in many parts of the world. 
If, on the other hand, over these next two or three decades, we try to fashion our management of climate change in a way that does or appears to place obstacles in the way of rising living standards in the developing world over these next two or three decades, then we will fail, and arguably deserve to fail, to put together the coalition that's necessary to manage climate change. So that's why uh, we have to see these two together. They're intimately linked, and in any case, from the basic ethics of all this, we ought to be seeing these two things as uh, twin, twin challenges and not to look just at one of them. Now, let's remind ourselves that what could happen if we were not serious about this problem. We're currently, and these numbers matter, so you've got to do some mental arithmetic, but it's not hard. We are around 435 parts per million CO2 equivalent. That's the stuff, the greenhouse gases, that um, uh, catch the energy, that prevent the energy from escaping. Basic physics, very simple. Um, molecules with three atoms uh, prevent uh, long-wave energy or some of the long-wave energy from escaping, and that's why uh, the greenhouse effect is there. That leads to global warming. Global warming leads to climate change. Climate change is the problem, and it normally manifests itself in uh, water, or the lack of it in some shape or form, storms, floods, droughts, sea level rise. Um, so that's the story of how it happens. The basic science goes back to Joseph Fourier in the 1820s. Uh, when he noticed that uh, the Earth was warmer than you'd expect from the basic heat balance equations, he concluded, therefore, that something was trapping the heat. By the middle of the uh, 19th century, the great British scientist John uh, Tyndall had worked out what the greenhouse gases were, and by the end of the 19th century, the Swedish chemist Arrhenius had started to measure the possible effects. Evidence built up then over long periods of time from different parts of the world, from different sources, most recently and interestingly um, from ice cores which go back 800,000 years. But um, this is a basic theory which started out clear and strong from the point of view of very, very simple physics and has just uh, gone on receiving stronger supporting evidence as uh, time goes by. So that's the story. That's the uh, greenhouse effect. We are at 435 parts per million. We're adding 2.5 parts per million a year. That uh, rate of addition, currently 2.5, is rising. If we went on as we were, we'd probably average at least uh, 3 parts per million per year over the century, probably more than that. So uh, 100 times 3... Uh, 100 times more than 3 is more than 300, add that to 435, we'd be at 750 parts per million or more under business as usual around the end of this century. That would imply uh, something like a 50-50 chance of sometime at the end of this century or early next being above 5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial times. We normally take the benchmark as the 19th century. What does that mean? Well, 5 degrees centigrade is enormous. Uh, we have not been there as a planet for about 30 million years, the uh, Eocene period. We haven't been as a planet above 3 degrees centigrade for about 3 million years. We as humans have been around for 200,000, even on an extraordinarily generous interpretation of sapiens in Homo sapiens. We haven't experienced anything like that upwards. We've experienced something like that downwards, indeed uh, quite recently, the last ice age. Uh, 10, 12,000 years ago, 
um, ice sheets came down to uh, roughly Watford. Um, that often gets a laugh in this country. Um, it doesn't uh, generate much response in other parts of the world. <laughs> but where were people? They were closer to the equator than that. Of course, there were people around 10, 12,000 years ago. This affects profoundly where people can be. It looks as if if we were uh, uh, moving up those temperatures on the scale that I just described, or even something close to it, um, much of southern Europe would become uh, like the Sahara Desert, uh, much of uh, Bangladesh would be underwater, and of course many other low-lying areas as well, and human beings had chosen to live near coasts for understandable reasons. We don't know exactly uh, what those effects would be, but we can surely see that the risks would very, be very big. And uh, the reasons for living where we live in terms of not being in deserts or not being underwater or living near rivers or living near coasts would be rewritten. The physical geography would be rewritten. The human geography would be rewritten, uh, where we live and how we live. And hundreds of millions of people would probably have to move. And if we've learned anything from uh, the last couple of hundred years, movement on that scale would probably result in extended um, and severe conflict. So those are the kinds of risks that we run based, simply, based on the simple arithmetical consequences and the underlying science. So this is very, uh, we are playing here for very big stakes and we have to recognize the magnitude of the risks that are involved. This is about risk management. We cannot predict these outcomes with certainty. There are inevitably some uncertainty in these models. Uncertainty about the absorptive capacity of the planet, particularly of the oceans. And actually the evidence on that seems to have been becoming more depressing. Um, uncertainty about the price, precise magnitude of some of the links in these chains. This is about risk management. But the basic science tells us that some of these risks are probably very big. What does that tell us about risk management? Well, suppose that um, we recognize the risks, uh, invested in new technology, energy efficiency, and um, stopping deforestation, we would have uh, generated new technologies, more energy efficiency, and a more biodiverse world. We might have spent a bit more on those things than we would otherwise have done because the risks turned out to be a bit less than we thought. But it's not a bad place to be. What if uh, we acted as if those risks were small or the science was completely wrong? Well, uh, if the science turned out to be remotely right, and it's extremely likely that it is, but if the science turned out to be remotely right, we would have backed ourselves into a very, very difficult corner from which uh, with probably much of the damage irreversible and it would be uh, very difficult to back out um, partly because the uh, uh, greenhouse gases stay as concentrations for a very, very long time. So any kind of sensible approach to uh, risk management, those of you who are statisticians will have recognized type 1 and type 2 errors, but uh, just commonsensical approach to risk management tells us unless we're absolutely dead sure or very close to sure that, that uh, this science is completely wrong, and I've not seen even the wildest of the sceptics uh, argue that, and, but that's what we'd need to do in order to uh, turn upside down the basic commonsensical argument, to risk, uh, argument about risk management.
So that's uh, the story of the stakes that we're playing. Now, what about Copenhagen? Well, we've now uh, agreed as a world that uh, we left it too late to come to a formal uh, treaty structure, but that we're now looking for what's called a political agreement, better, I think, described as an organizational framework with strong political commitment and with clear, strong targets. And that's what we're aiming for. The overall um, emissions reductions that we need to make in relation to basic targets here, particularly to give ourselves a 50-50 chance on two degrees centigrade, which uh, scientists have understandably described as a uh, beyond that being dangerous climate change, to do with all kinds of feedback effects like the collapse of the Amazon forest, the uh, melting of the, uh, or the thawing of the permafrost and rele release of methane and so on. So we should be looking in this political agreement for uh, clear targets for the world and we should be looking at clear targets for the rich countries. We should be looking at basic finance whereby the rich countries could help the poorer countries uh, move strongly as they will have to do if we're to uh, combat climate change and combine that with the kind of growth and development necessary to overcome poverty. So those are the basic structures. And uh, there's a Danish draft which is being held very tight, which I have not seen, um, which uh, is eight or nine pages. Uh, at the end of last week, there was a China, India, Brazil, South Africa, and group of 77 draft, which I'm told runs to 10 pages. But what we're talking about is drafts of that length which um, are of a kind of length that even a prime minister or a president in a hurry could uh, take in and understand and come to an agreement on. So we're in a position now where the issues at hand, the issues to be discussed and settled, are prime ministerial and presidential decisions. And let's be clear, they couldn't really be taken by an environment minister or a finance minister because this is looking right across the whole uh, waterfront, if I might use that metaphor, of economic environment and social activity. It's looking across the waterfront of international relations. This does need prime ministers, presidents, heads of government to come to a decision, and more and more prime ministers and presidents and heads of government are committed to coming on the 17th or 18th. Some of them may even come twice if they're going to see uh, President Obama on December the 9th. But, uh, okay, uh, there's a sequence there. We're going to build up, and December 17th and 18th, um, no doubt, will be exciting and tiring days for the presidents and prime ministers who come to Copenhagen. So this is what we're trying to put together. If we fail to make, take this opportunity, it's not going to be easy. If you look around the world, we have a new Japanese government um, where the new Prime Minister, uh, Hatayama, within a few days of coming to office in September, uh, committed to 25% reductions in Japan, 1990 to uh, 2020. Um, we have President Obama, who on the night of November the 4th last year in Grant Park, just after he, the election results came through, spoke of a planet in peril and asked what kind of world his daughters would see if they lived as long as Anne Nixon Cooper currently then 106. These are governments around the world that are taking this issue seriously. Um, the Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh was uh, re-elected with a stronger majority and put a, uh, a really creative leader, Jairam Ramesh, 
um, with joint decision with Sonia Gandhi in the Environment Ministry. China has been working on uh, its 12th five-year plan uh, with clear targets uh, on, and I'll come back to those, on uh, emissions per unit of output. Brazil and uh, Indonesia have recently made strong commitments. Uh, it looks as if the Brazilian presidential election campaign um, uh, will actually be fought partly on these issues and the importance of tackling climate change. We have uh, a Europe which has finally got rid of its constitutional angst and is actually in a better position to move forward and start taking decisions. I don't think it, you could assume that the political prospects around the world will get better. They might, but they're not bad given the group that uh, we've got. And I do think we have to recognize that if this ends in uh, contention and disarray, it may not be possible to put things back together again. So um, the stakes are high, we've got a chance, and the costs of failure are high. But I've spoken about the costs of failure, uh, how difficult it would be. But let's think also about what kind of uh, progress and path of development would create if we really move forward strongly. We could create, and would in my view create, one of the most exciting periods in economic history since, uh, well, period, one of the most exciting periods in economic history. Dynamic, innovatory, uh, creative, um, as we embark on what is an energy and industrial revolution. Many ideas have come and come strongly after the, over the last uh, four or five years. It's quite extraordinary the technical progress that's taking place. We're crushing the capital costs of solar as a world, uh, for example. You have um, long-term investment funds around the world looking uh, to make long-term in investments on behalf of pensioners and so on who are currently 20 or 30, and those funds are thinking of what are the big growth prospects in the future. China, over its last, last year, has recognized very clearly that this is a big growth area of the future. It and South Korea had the strongest green elements in, its, in their uh, reflationary package. Um, we're going to see competition over low-carbon technologies and energy-efficient technologies of a very healthy kind. So this will be a very powerful growth story as we make the transition to the low-carbon economy. And when we get there, it will be attractive. It will be more energy secure, cleaner, quieter, safer, and more biodiverse. So the prospects, if we move strongly and get policy clear and strong, are extremely attractive. We will have to make investments during a, of a quite a strong kind over these next two or three decades. We will have to pay more for our electricity for a while. This won't come for nothing. We have to make those investments but they will be investments with very attractive returns relative to climate change, but actually more generally and widely than just on climate change. High carbon growth will become a contradiction in terms. It will kill itself, first on very high prices for hydrocarbons, and second on the very hostile physical environment it will create. So that's what we're playing for. Now, what should our targets be? Let me take for the moment, indeed for, the, for this talk, as has been uh, taken really uh, politically as part of the preparation for Copenhagen, uh, that uh, we're looking for two degrees centigrade with a probability of roughly 50-50. will be actually quite tough to do better than that. But let's take the two degrees centigrade target as a 50-50 chance 
of holding to 2 degrees centigrade. Now, what do we have to do? Well, um, this is the kind of analysis which climate uh, scientists around the world and climate modelers around the world have been looking at. What's involved in holding uh, to a 50-50 chance of 2 degrees centigrade? Well, roughly speaking, we have to control overall emissions over the next several decades. And we have to, the more, if we uh, cut back uh, a bit more earlier, we can cut back a bit less later. If we cut back a bit more earlier, we can cut back a little less later. It's the cumulative emissions over a few decades that really determine uh, where we're going to end up here. Um, what kind of paths are necessary? Well, we're close to 50 billion tons, or gigatons, as the scientists say. We're close to uh, 50 billion tons. We would have been there had it not been for the slowdown. We're probably around 47 billion tons now in terms of annual emissions. We, and uh, I'm talking about the middle orange path here, we would need to be around 44 gigatons in 2020, so that's our first uh, check target, as it were. We would have to be well below 35 gigatons in 2030 and well below 20 gigatons in 2050. If we go higher than that, uh, the top path here in the early stages is at 48, but it involves very rapid uh, reduction and uh, much lower levels in, uh, in the future. So I'm going to take this uh, orange path as the natural path to be looking at here. There's a paper by my colleagues um, Nicola Ranger and Alex Bowen of the Grantham Institute, uh, which sets that analysis out in more detail. And that's also available on the, uh, on the web. So I'll take that orange path as the kind of path that we ought to be going to. We should note just how radical the changes involved are likely or are required to be. If we uh, run it forward to 2020, sorry, if we run it forward to 2050, 2050, and say that we have to be well below 20 uh, billion tons, and remember that we'll be about 9 billion people there at that time, you know, plus or minus uh, some, then uh, dividing below 20 by 9 tells us that we have to get down to around 2 tons per capita by 2050. Uh, we currently, um, as a world, uh, generate about uh, 1 ton per capita from agriculture. So that's a measure of just how radical we're going to have to be, but it can be done. We need zero carbon electricity and from that we can get zero carbon uh, uh, road transport. We have to be much more energy, in, more energy efficient. We have to stop deforestation. If we start reforesting, that can capture uh, some carbon. So we can get there, but, uh, and we can get there in an exciting, creative way, but we have to be radical in the way we use energy. So that's the kind of path that we have to follow, and it'll be the reference path that I'll use for asking how close are we to an agreement. Those of you who've ever driven around with children in the back of the car will recognize the question, are we there yet? And uh, the answer to that question is, no, we're not, but we're actually, if you add up all the commitments that people have made, not that far away, provided they do actually deliver on the more ambitious of their commitments. So here are current intentions. I'm avoiding the word commitments. Maybe we can use the language of commitments after Copenhagen, but ahead of Copenhagen, uh, let's talk about uh, intentions. The US targets um, or intentions 
have recently been articulated uh, by Barack Obama, but they essentially summarize what are in the bills in uh, Congress. Um, the EU, the highest intentions are 30% reductions on 1990 by 2020. Uh, Japan, as I um, mentioned earlier, have already said 25% reductions 1990 to 2020, but like others, they've added in the context of commitments by others as well. So this is why we need the agreement, because a lot of these uh, intentions or commitments are uh, appended to the statement, assuming others make comparable efforts. So that's why we need a global agreement. The efforts of one, the commitments and intentions of one, reinforce the commitment and intention of others. Um, I've used China and India's uh, ambitions as set out really roughly as uh, in the first half of this month. China's articulated target last week of 40, 40, 40 to 45% reductions in emissions 2005 to 2020 is not far away. In fact, perhaps arguably a little bit less than what's already been announced in terms of um, renewables and uh, nuclear and so on. So if you add all those things up, uh, remembering that we are um, uh, taking the most ambitious end of these uh, intentions, you get to around 48 and a half um, billion tonnes where we need to go to 44. More recently, um, there have been quite strong proposals from South Korea, Indonesia and Brazil. Indonesia and Brazil particularly importantly on deforestation. If all of those came to pass, then that would take off another two and a half and take us down to about 46. So that's the sense in which if people delivered on the most ambitious things that are on the table, we'd not be so very far away. That surely tells us that a decent agreement, which is effective in the sense of getting us onto a path that could give us 50-50 chance of two degrees centigrade, that we're not so far away if all those things did turn out to be delivered. That tells us that as far as reductions go, a solid, effective agreement is possible. But there are very big ifs there, and for many of the developing countries in particular, those ifs concern support, and for many of the rich countries, those ifs concern people moving together. But uh, it's not hopeless. We do have a chance, at least on the quantity side of getting there. Now, I've emphasized throughout, and certainly from the beginning, that this is about overcoming poverty and managing climate change. If you look at the growth ambitions of the developing world, if you look at uh, the ambitions of India and China to grow at something like 7% over these next uh, two decades, if you recognize the growth ambitions of other parts of the developing world and the fact that most rich countries would like to resume growing at 2 to 2.5%, you can see very quickly that we're going to have to break the link between economic activity and emissions. 7% uh, growth rate doubles in a decade. Uh, if China at 7, 7.5 tons at the moment, sorry, 7, 7.5 gigatons, billion tons at the moment, uh, doubled in a decade, that 7.5 would become 15. That's clearly inconsistent with something like uh, 35 um, billion tons as a constraint in 2030. 
And uh, I give that as an example, but it applies to growth across the world. We're going to have to break that link between um, economic activity and emissions. That's the point. That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about low-carbon growth, when we're talking about um, these targets. But it does remind us that uh, if output were to double in a decade, we're only going to hold emissions constant if emissions per unit, and out, per unit of output halves in a decade. And for the fast-growing countries, that's the kind of uh, ambition that we as a world would have to look for and support if these kinds of targets are to be reached. Um, I believe it can be done. There are all kinds of direct reasons for believing it can be done. I was working in uh, China in early September with the people who are working on the 12th five-year plan, and I believe those kinds of ambitions are at least under discussion. But China, unusually in planning processes, doesn't set targets until it's done a lot of work on whether or not those targets can be achieved. Not the same as planning processes in other countries I can, but will not name. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll see more from China, but that will be their choice, and their choice made carefully looking at what's possible and looking at sharing of technologies and that sort of thing. So that's the, uh, that's the story. Um, all the countries involved have their politics. Uh, China has its politics, India has its politics, the United States has its politics. They all take different forms. Australia has reminded us yesterday they too have their politics when uh, Malcolm Turnbull was pushed out of his position as leader of his party uh, in the Senate on issues uh, to do with uh, climate change and trading schemes. The politics here are going to be tough, but uh, I believe they can be handled with the right kind of leadership, with the right kind of evidence, and with the right kind of international action so people are confident that we're all moving together. That's why we need a meeting of uh, getting everybody together. So the last part of what I have to say is about what the global deal looks like. And again, those of you um, aged over 50 you might have trouble reading this. Um, well, it's probably not your future that counts, the people whose future counted. <laughs> um, but let me uh, give you the basic uh, issues here. I've already spoken about the scale of reductions and the importance of technological change. Let me now turn to the kinds of sums that would be involved. And uh, I've looked at these in uh, some detail in the book that's available for sale outside the, uh, the hall, which I'll be very happy to sign if you uh, want me to after the event. I'll remind you, the, I or uh, Howard will remind you of that again before the end of the, uh, the lecture. But some of the support for these numbers are there, some of the support for these numbers are in the work which McKinsey and the International Energy Agency have done, some of the support for these numbers are in the work of the uh, Human Development Report of a couple of years ago that UNDP put out, uh, you've got the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Research, there's quite a lot of background for these numbers which I don't have time to uh, go into here. But I would argue that uh, the scale of support by 2015 from rich countries to poor countries should be not less than 50 billion per annum. That will be a lot less than the costs which the developing countries face. Um, arguably, and there's good work by Sam Frankhauser of the Grantham Institute here, uh, the cost to Africa of adaptation of development in a more hostile climate will be about $30 billion per annum by 2015 uh, and rising. 
But suppose we put down $15 billion, just the half of it, for help from outside. If we look at the challenge of deforestation, we could probably cut deforestation in half with around $15 billion per annum or so. It may be a bit more, but let's just put down that for external help, for the, uh, particularly for the rainforest nations. There's going to have to be some funding of new uh, forms of technology and for sharing of those technology and, where necessary, buying out uh, intellectual property. Before long, you can see that uh, $50 billion per annum by 2015 is actually a fairly conservative estimate of where you'd want support to be. But let me just take that one as um, uh, the kind of target that we should be thinking of in 2015. A lot of people have been talking, Gordon Brown made an important speech in uh, June of this year about uh, 100 billion per annum by 2020. Um, I would put the numbers somewhat higher than that in the 2020s. But these are the kinds of scale of support that we ought to be able to find uh, one way or another. As things develop, as costs come down, it may be that that kind of support, the kind of support we're talking about, uh, could be less than that. But that's the kind of numbers I think we should be uh, looking to. $50 billion in 2015 will be about 0.1% of rich country GDP in 2015. One in a, a thousandth. If we think this problem is very serious, and it's hard to avoid thinking this problem is very serious, that's not a uh, huge contribution to ask for. Now, many of you will have noticed that um, we've had a financial crisis and a slowdown. Um, I've spent some of the cheerful years of my life in uh, the UK Treasury. I think I understand budget constraints. I edited the Journal of Public Economics for 17 years. I think I understand budget constraints. And as Chief Economist of the World Bank, you had to whisper in people's ears constantly about budget constraints. Um, Times are not easy from the budgetary point of view, and we may not be able to find as a rich world, or let me rephrase, we may not choose to find as a rich world all that 50 billion by uh, 2015. I think we should, as a rich world, recognize the kinds of numbers that uh, are required. The European Union in its recent council, I did think, I think did recognize the kind of numbers required for uh, 2020. We ought to recognize that we have to provide support by 2015 because we're talking about supporting action now, not action later. Uh, we're talking about giving confidence to people, particularly in the developing world, to take that action. So if we can't find or choose not to find all that uh, 50 billion per annum by 2015 now, I think what we could set in place is a process for looking, and I'll come to that in the next slide, a process for looking at new sources of revenue. And I think there are relevant new sources of revenue we could look for. Dividing up the contributions between rich countries, that's always a fun game for civil servants to do, international civil servants to do their arm wrestling. But if you look at uh, share of GDP, you'd be talking about the US uh, uh, order of magnitude, 30, uh, 35% uh, European Union, perhaps uh, a bit more. Um, if you looked at contribution to emissions, you'd argue that the US uh, uh, should um, uh, up their contribution as a percentage relative to national income. But I don't want to get too formulaic here. 
The United States is in a difficult position politically. Uh, we all are uh, extremely keen that nothing is disturbed in the passage of uh, the passage which we would like to hope for of bills through Congress in these coming few months. Uh, the Waxman-Markey bill, the uh, Kerry-Boxer bill and their variants. So I think that uh, we shouldn't be too formulaic. We should recognize the magnitude of the problem. The EU should continue its strong leadership on this issue and that uh, we should look for creative forms of funding, which I'll um, now turn to. Uh, many of you who concentrate on what happens in the UK will have noticed that next week on December the 9th, we have the pre-budget report, the same day that Barack Obama is uh, in uh, Copenhagen. And I think the pre-budget report will be an opportunity that many of us will be looking for, certainly I will be looking for, for the UK to uh, show uh, the continued leadership, which it has shown in its climate change legislation and its strategic uh, action plans and uh, in Gordon Brown's uh, first raising $100 billion per annum uh, by 2020 in uh, June of this year. So I hope and trust that that leadership will be manifest when we see the pre-budget report next week. What kind of new sources of revenue? Well, their national carbon, well, they should be relevant to this issue, I think, if we're talking about spending them on climate change. Um, national carbon taxes, national permit auction uh, revenues, interna international auction revenues, where before, as it were, in any international cap and trade scheme, caps are divided up. There's a slice which uh, goes to help the uh, developing world. International transport levies on uh, avia international aviation or maritime, and creative use of the special drawing rights which have um, been issued as a part of the economic crisis and we trust may now not uh, be under the same kind of um, pressure. So there are ways of looking at this. If the rich countries of the world want to ask their policy wonks to go away and look at ways of raising extra money, I'm sure that uh, there'll be no shortage of volunteers uh, to do exactly that. Orders of magnitude, 1 billion tonnes at a $30 a tonne of uh, CO2 tax or uh, auction revenue generates 30 billion. All of you can multiply 1 by 30, and that would raise uh, around $30 billion per annum. That might correspond to something less than 10% uh, of the overall auction permits. It might correspond to something like the uh, emissions from international aviation or maritime. If we wanted to find these extra sources of funds relevant to all this, we could. Private sector funds will be very important. Good policy will generate strong private sector investment. But private sector funds don't come for nothing. Private sector funds come for interest, repayment of capital, or dividends if it's uh, FDI. So there's a strong complementarity between public and private money um, but we shouldn't confuse the two. They're both very important and strong public commitment can help generate strong private sector investments. We're going to have to think about how to use those extra funds and to use them wisely and well. There I think uh, it's very important that they don't get separated from development funding because uh, adaptation, for example, is simply development, not simply, but logically it's simply development in a more hostile climate. We don't want those to be pulled apart by uh, new structures which put a wedge between 
adaptation funding and development funding. So my own suggestion in the case of Africa, for example, a crucially important case, is that a new uh, soft window, uh, to use the language of the international financial institutions, could be opened in the African Development Bank alongside uh, the soft window that would be there already in the African Development Fund. Those are the kinds of organisational management stories that we could uh, look for. But they will be an important part of the story, as will be decision-taking or governance on those sources. So here's my last slide. Priorities for the last few days. It seems strange to say that now, but it's December the 1st, and in the past I've been talking about priorities for the last few weeks or uh, in uh, the spring priorities for the last few months. But this is now priorities for the last few days. We've got to go as a world to the top end of people's commitment ranges and we can do that only if we do it together. Uh, we've got to do a bit more than that actually. We've got to do that and find another two or three billion tonnes. I believe that European leadership in moving now from 20% to 30% cuts 1990 to 2020 could be a very valuable way of starting uh, that process. I've already spoken about the importance of recognising the quantitative support that's likely to be necessary, committing to as much of that as we feel able to now as rich countries and finding and uh, looking into new sources going further. So that's a two-step process. I'd much prefer if it was a one-step process and we went straight there, but if we can't, it could be a two-stage process. The leaders have got to go to Copenhagen in a strongly collaborative spirit looking for agreement. Red lines, exits, arm wrestling should not be uh, the language of the day. It should be about going to work together to get a good result. This will be bigger collaboration than the world has seen. What's remarkable, it seems to me, is that how close we seem to be getting to agreeing that kind of collaboration. I think it says a lot for the good sense of the world, but will it hold together for long enough and strongly enough uh, all the way to December 17th and 18th. We're about to uh, find that out, but I think it's the job of all of us to argue strongly that that's where we need to be. So I've argued that if we lose this moment, it won't be easy to put back together again. Perhaps not impossible, but we shouldn't assume that we can just pick up where we were before. It won't be easy if we let this one go. I, described, I started by describing the risks if we get it wrong, they are truly immense. But the prize, if we get it right, is not only the avoidance of those risks, but it's setting off on a different way of economics and uh, energy and industry in a way that uh, we summarize in the term low carbon growth, but it could be extremely attractive, not only when we get there, but also the transition from here to there. So are we gonna be uh, sensible? Well, you're going to find out, and we're all going to find out in the next uh, two and a half weeks. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Nick, well, we've got... Uh 20 minutes or so for questions. Um, I guess after that speech, there's really not any point in taking questions from the over 50s. So, um, uh, but there's uh, microphones 
um, around. And so who would like to kick off? Yeah, you caught my eye first up there. Good evening. My name is Tanya Dimitrova. My question is, what do you think about the Tobin tax, corporate transaction tax, as a way to raise money to uh, mitigate um, some of the costs? Um, you, you might want to address that uh, question to the gentleman on my uh, left who's been more deeply uh, into the financial markets than I have been. Um, my worry, I mean, I have some uh, interest and attraction to the Tobin tax for other reasons. I do have concerns as to whether it could really work or whether we could get the administrative and political agreement to getting it to work. But that's another story. Some attractions in logic, some worries about um, uh, making it happen. But my worry is it's an easy answer to too much, um, to all kinds of questions that, where we might want to raise money. I would prefer to focus on the kinds of taxes that also make a strong contribution to the problem at hand and start to give the right kind of incentives. So taxes on international aviation or, or maritime, um, auctioning permits, uh, revenues from carbon taxes more generally. I would prefer that to, to make that the first call. And I think if you look at the quantities, if we're serious about all this, they could generate the kind of revenues that we need. Thank you. Uh, yes, woman in the front uh, row in grey. Thank you for your presentation. Um, I have one question, which is, if we do reach an agreement in Copenhagen, then how will we then measure that we are meeting it and making the progress that we've agreed to? Thank you. Um, in the jargon of all this, um, there's uh, what's called MRV, which is uh, Measurement Reporting Verification. And I do think that that uh, must be an important part of the story. It's an important part of the story of generating trust and understanding what uh, others are doing. Before long, we're going to be able to do this physically. Um, we can place on the Earth uh, sensors of various kinds. They can measure all sorts of other things, not just uh, greenhouse gases, but we could put on the surface of the Earth these kinds of sensors, beam uh, the results up to satellites and get results very quickly on what's actually happening. At the moment, we do our measurement mostly through coefficients on different forms of activity. Um, so it's a pretty rough set way of measuring at uh, the moment, a lot better than not measuring, but it's uh, pretty rough. So I would hope that before long, we would start to um, put in place more direct physical ways of measuring and to get agreement on doing that. Um, watch this space. I think there will be announcements by people who want to do that at uh, Copenhagen. But I do think the MRV part of the story, to use the jargon of uh, this discussion, will be an important part of maintaining trust. We agree, we agree to do that when we get into WTO type agreements. We agree to monitoring of what is actually happening. Um, in, under the IMF uh, rules, people who are members of the IMF are subject to rich countries and poor countries, all countries, uh, Article 4 uh, examinations of how they're running their fiscal debt and uh, other policies. I think we need a similar kind of structure uh, here, and I trust that uh, it will be part 
of an international agreement. There's some sensitivity to notions of intrusion and other people monitoring you and intrusions on independence, but I'm hoping that will fade away. Thank you. Uh, yeah, right down the front row, grey T-shirt. Thanks. Um, yeah, you started, um, you started talking in that last uh, answer about structures, um, but throughout the lecture you spoke a lot about targets. Um, personally, I feel rather dubious of targets when we look at agreements like in the 1970s, many rich countries agreeing to donate, um, what is it, 0.7% to poor countries to tackle the other great um, problem you, you identified of our century. I was just wondering whether you think that um, these kind of targets which you're talking about will solve the problem enough or whether we need um, structures like um, the one you were talking about or um, what you think about markets or other structures like this, um, whether these should be agreed at Copenhagen and what kind of thing could be. Thanks. Um, there's clearly not going to be a uh, policeman or woman from Mars who records transgressions and comes with a big stick and beats people over the head. Um, we're going to have to try to think of methods which are agreed amongst us all for um, uh, monitoring and uh, um, insisting on, I hate to use the word enforcing, uh, but this kind of issue is what's at stake. Um, I think the forces of competition will be valuable and the forces of politics will be valuable. Um, countries around the, in countries around the world, uh, electorates, it's not universal, but it's uh, quite common, electorates around the world are demanding action. Um, Schwarzenegger got re-elected in California as governor in part on these kinds of policies. Um, John Howard got thrown out as Prime Minister of Australia in part because of these kinds of issues. So there will be political constraints and action and I think that's a very important part of any kind of process of insisting on delivery. We've tried institutional structures in the UK where the climate change legislation puts an obligation on the government. Now, ten years down the track, you're not going to put former Prime Ministers in jail for failing to take the measures ten years previously to enact the measures they which would be necessary. For other reasons, there. That's Thank you, uh, Howard. Uh, <laughs> we're relying on you to take the initiative there. But the um, the political processes and institutional structures that countries can create for themselves. The European Union is an example where people subscribe to their agreements on a whole slew of dimensions within the European Union because they recognize that life goes on. If they behave badly on one dimension, then they're not going to be treated so well in the community on some other dimension down the track. If you look at international trade, as I said, China, um, South Korea, Japan, I hope much of the EU are going to go quite strongly for these new technologies. Over time, stuff made with dirty technology is not going to look very attractive to consumers. So I think these are the kind of competitive forces, competition in politics and competition in the economic markets and the preferences of consumers that are the most uh, reliable form of um, enforcement here. Thank you. Uh, gosh, yes, a uh, woman over there with the red. Thanks. 
thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Anna Tchaikovska. I'm a master's student here. I was wondering what's your view on the clean development mechanism. You were talking about funds necessary for the developing countries. Lack of technology is the other side of the problem. I was wondering if you could give us some thoughts about how CDM should be reformed. Thank you. For, for those of you who um, don't wake up in the morning studying the clean development mechanism, it, the idea is that um, for a rich country with targets, interacting with a poor country without targets but looking for ways of cutting emissions, that if a firm, say, in a poor country can show that um, it is embarking on an investment which would yield less emissions than would otherwise have been the case, you as economists are familiar with than would otherwise have been <coughs> the case language, um, then it can sell those emissions uh, to the uh, firm in the rich country which if this goes through a committee in the poor country and then through another committee in Bonn, if it survives all that uh, and the firm lives so long, then um, those emissions can be credited in rich countries. Now, it's very striking that given all these administrative difficulties, these markets have grown up quite well. And, uh, but it is very bureaucratic, and I think part of the process and part of the discussion around Copenhagen and in the, and in the few months that follow preceding a more formal agreement, I think it's very important that we get good, strong reforms in the clean development mechanism. Ultimately, in 10 or 15 years' time, I hope sooner in a number of countries, you would have um, targets and binding agreements uh, taken in the developing or many of the developing countries of the world. I don't anticipate that now. It's not part of the Bali roadmap, which is shaping the road to <coughs> Copenhagen. The division between rich countries, Annex 1 countries, having uh, strong uh, binding targets and uh, other countries having climate change action plans which are supported, I think will probably uh, continue through this discussion. But I think it's important that we look ahead and start to think about the processes over these next five or ten years under which particularly the bigger, faster-growing developing countries take on commitments, those processes, how they actually work. But there will be a period where this one-sided trading, where you can sell if you come down but you're not penalised if you go up, where this one-sided trading uh, is likely to continue. It does have a valuable role to play in setting prices for carbon. It does have a valuable role to play in bringing and incentivizing newer technologies. So I think it is of value, but it's important during this period before binding constraints uh, kick in uh, that um, the whole administrative structure is made much more simple. That can be done through looking at programs rather than uh, projects, you know, public transport schemes in a uh, city, carbon-captured storage for a state uh, in India. I mean, I think one could look for programs, a programmatic form of the CDM, which would allow much bigger scale and actually would be much easier to verify. Ma'am, the blue stripy shirt at the top there. Yeah. And Professor Stern, uh, you mentioned that uh, CO2 stays for a very long time in the atmosphere. Um, what do you think uh, on a recent discussion about exhaustive cumulative carbon budgets and uh, does a 50% reduction by 2050 really solve the entire problem or should the goal not be zero emissions? Um, I did refer in my introduction to um, 
that what to the idea that what really counted was the overall emissions over uh, a few decades or several decades and that's why in the diagram that I had up there you know the one that uh, peaked later and went higher had to fall uh, faster and harder later on and that's an embodiment of the idea that uh, you just articulated in terms of carbon budgets. I think it's a useful way of looking at it. I think essentially it's a, a pretty close to logically equivalent to the kind of description that I gave which uh, drew on the paper by Nicola Ranger and Alex Bowen that uh, I referred to and is on the uh, Grantham website. So I think that's a useful way of looking at things and I think it's I deliberately made it consistent with the way in which we expressed it here. Uh, I have some attraction to the more intermediate clear targets, um, for example for 2020, because if somebody, you tell somebody they've got a budget over the uh, next uh, 40 or 50 or 60 years, which is a cumulative total, the reaction of the weaker brethren might be to say, well I'll tackle that uh, three or four decades from now. That's why I think there's value in uh, having these shorter term targets. If we could get to zero in 2020, then uh, splendid. I, I, sorry, you did say 2050, and uh, if we could get to zero in 2050, then good. Uh, I think it'd be pretty tough to do that, actually. If, I mean, if you just think of agriculture, which is already about one ton per capita if living standards rise in agriculture, with constant techniques, that of course would be higher than one tonne per capita. That underlines to me that uh, we need technical progress in agriculture, particularly low-till agriculture uh, as well. But um, the only way I think we could get to zero in 2050 is if we got very good at carbon capture and storage and started using carbon capture and storage with biomass. Then maybe, but I suspect we'd still be short of that, considerably short of that, I would guess. Man uh, in black uh, in the middle with glasses on, yes? Black and white, stripy collared shirt. What, what, what else? Have you, what colour are your underpants? <laughs> okay. Uh, that, that's John Major, I <laughs> The difference of quarters between developed and developing countries will most probably lead to repositioning of certain economic activities from one place to the other. Uh, what do you think uh, will the repercussions of this be in the long run for developed countries? Sorry, I didn't catch the beginning of that. Could you just repeat the first part? The difference in quarters for between development, uh, developed countries and uh, developing countries uh, will lead to repositioning of certain economic activities. Uh, so my question is, what do you think the long-term repercussions of this will be for developed countries? I think that if you look at the reasons for people choosing economic activities where they choose them, uh, you'll see proximity to consumers, proximity to sources, investment, climate, ease of doing business, infrastructure, taxation, and so on. And we did study in the Stern Review the role of environmental regulation and uh, constraints in determining the location of economic activity. And it's fairly modest. If you look at the really big change in the international changes in the international division of labor, and they of course have been enormous over these last uh, few decades with many sort of big manufacturing bases moving to China, uh, this was to a large extent to do with um, 
low wages, uh, rising skills, and ability to get things done. So I think the first part of the answer is that this kind of movement, if you look at the empirical data, looks to be pretty small uh, as a, uh, a reason for choosing location of economic activity. So I wouldn't expect a lot of movement for that particular reason. Then, well, maybe there may well be continuing relocation of economic activity, but I suspect it will be the continued manifestation of the kind of reasons that I was describing, rather than uh, climate uh, change legislation and uh, quotas. Um, if, for example, aluminium smelting moved largely to Iceland because they have uh, geothermal electricity, that doesn't seem to me to be a bad allocation of uh, international resources. So some of that would happen, and uh, if it happened for the reasons or in the way of the example I just described, that's no bad thing. Thank you. Yeah, down there. Yeah. If we're talking about a more equitable distribution of global emissions, um, is it not more equitable also to be looking at them in terms not just of emissions per country but per capita? Um, and my understanding is that the countries in the world with the largest per capita carbon emissions are actually the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia amongst the top five. And why is it that no one mentions this? And are they likely to figure in the Copenhagen Agreement at all, do you think? Um, you did just mention this, um, <laughs> uh, with good reason, uh, and the tables generally show exactly that, and there are tables out there where I take it you look that up, and uh, other people have looked it up too. So it's not as if it's a secret. Um, the big countries, or the bigger countries with high emissions per capita, not quite in the league that you just described, are uh, United States, Canada, Australia. Um, so that is an important observation. But secondly, equity is not particularly about equity and emissions. Equity is about opportunity, income, wealth. And uh, it will be the case, and I'm distinguishing strongly here between actual emissions and emissions permits, it will be the case, <clears throat> as I argued in the lecture, that we have to get down as a world to roughly two tons per capita on average, below 20, considerably below 20, arguably, in uh, 2050, divided by roughly 9 billion people in 2050. So we've got to get down something like two tons per capita. There won't be many people below two tons per capita, I would guess, so there can't be many people above two tons per capita. The average is the average. This is not a classroom where all the children are above average. This is uh, um, the average. So we're going to have to be clustered around two tons per capita. That doesn't mean that we have a right to emit two tons per capita or the emissions permits or the emissions allocations are two tons per capita. Arguably the rich countries have been emitting, have been emitting so much for so long they should have a good bit less than two tons per capita. But basically we don't look at the equity, if we look at the equi equity in our society, I think it would be a bit odd if we looked at the equitable distribution of apples. Or, <clears throat> I'm told there are shoes made by Jimmy Choo. I mean, whatever you look at, it doesn't make much sense to look at equity 
commodity by commodity or asset by asset. It makes sense to look at it overall. If there are particular arguments here, I think there are arguments about past emissions and what that does to any right that uh, you might have. But personally, I don't think there's any right to emit. Uh, there's right to share the atmosphere and to breathe it and live in it. That's not the same as a right to emit. I think there's right to development, you could argue, right to possibly argue rights to uh, energy, possibly. But right to emit, I don't get. There's no right to damage the planet. Um, that's obvious to me, anyway. So I think the best way to look at this is in terms of where actual emissions should be, and that's going to be clustered around two tons per capita. Not everybody exactly the same, but clustered around there. And then talk about the allocation of a new financial asset, if that's the route we go, and talk about equity in the allocation of that new financial asset relative to all the other inequities in the world and see it as a whole. So that's the way I'd prefer to, uh, to look at it. Thanks. I'm going to take one more right on the back row. Um, I think you, you're the only chairman I've, I've been with that has the ability to look upwards. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you need to give a chance to the people in the cheap seats up there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, hi, Nick. Um, President Obama might be going to Copenhagen, but in the end, he doesn't pass laws in the U.S. Um, I'm just wondering, um, is the American domestic political agenda the key to securing a global deal in Copenhagen in the end? Thank you. It's certainly very important. Um, without strong commitment from the U.S., it's very hard to see how um, a global agreement could hang together. I think what's remarkable is how far that political discussion has gone. I mean, if you go back two or three years, it looked pretty hopeless. Um, so I think in thinking about the difficulties, we should also recognize how far uh, that discussion has gone in the U.S. We should see the U.S. as not just um, Capitol Hill. If you look at state by state, city by city, uh, there are literally hundreds of U.S. cities that uh, have made strong carbon reduction uh, commitments. California and other states have made strong carbon reduction commitments. So first we should look at the United States as a whole and recognize just how big the movement has been and recognize the commitments there are at different levels of government, uh, not simply the federal government. But that being said, I do think that climate change legislation in the United States is very important. I think a good agreement in Copenhagen, showing that other people are going along, actually going along further, would help in getting that legislation passed. But all of us who are involved, and that's all of us, should think about um, how to be helpful to our brothers and sisters in the United States uh, who are trying uh, to be sensible about all this. And they're a growing number, and uh, with the right kind of support and the right kind of agreement at Copenhagen, I think there's a good chance of getting that legislation passed. But it really matters. I'm going to take one last uh, one. Yes, you there. Hi, I'm Mary Dengler from Royal Holloway. And I'm just wondering if you could give us what, in your opinion, you think will be the single largest impediment to a possible agreement at Copenhagen. Um, I'll give you two. Um, 
financial stinginess and mistrust. But I think both of these can be overcome, and I think we've got a good chance of overcoming uh, both of them. Thanks. Um, before I ask you to thank Nick, let me just say three things. One, that his book, his latest book, is outside. <laughs> Um, and uh, what's going to happen is he's going to stay up here. And so if you want to get a book, you get one, and then you come around and bring it uh, across, and um, he will uh, sign everybody's book and kiss appropriate people. Um, and remember the proximity of Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the second thing I, I think I ought to have said really at the beginning, considering all the controversy recently, that Nick is a man who has never deleted an email. Um, uh, that's because he never answers emails, actually, but uh, I, uh, that's my problem. Um, uh, but thirdly, uh, as he said, uh, not every child in the class can be above average. Um, most LSE lectures in the evenings are above average, but this one was above, above average. Thank you very much.